Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi. I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. Today on American Glutton, we welcome Lane Norton. Lane is a PhD in nutritional science, pro-natural bodybuilder, raw elite powerlifter, physique coach, and has been called the godfather of nutritional science. You can find Lane at BioLane on Instagram or BioLane.com. Lane Norton, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. Thanks for having me on, Ethan. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for doing this amidst all the chaos in the world right now. I, I appreciate it, and I think it will be really helpful for people. Well, two things I'm good at are nutrition and talking, and I can still do those from the comfort of my home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Nothing is slow down there. No, no, we, we've, we've been humming right along. I guess I first want to ask you why it is you think, and, and I have my suspicions about this, but why it is you think that there are so many diets out there that kind of misrepresent their, not even their vitality, but their kind of ownership on the space of dieting versus people just approaching these diets through scientific means? A lot to unpack in that question, I, but I think I think if I had to kind of give up halfway for that. I think first off, I think that the truth is usually not sexy. So let's, let's, I always like to relate to people's industries that they're in, right? So you're, you're an actor, uh, you've been successful in that. And if, if what would be sexy would be if somebody came to you and say, Hey, what are five easy hacks that you could give into making it as a Hollywood actor? Right. <laughs> so my, I, I don't know anything about acting. But I imagine a large portion of what works is probably very boring. And that is work really hard, practice your shit all the time, 
uh, become utterly obsessed about it and have the right breaks at the right time. I'm, I'm guessing it's something like that. You can correct me if I'm wrong. No, I, I think that that is fairly close to it. There's a, there's a, the, the only problem you run into there is there's a subjective nature to it. And I think sure. a lot of luck that goes into it. So it's like, sure. You know, with a diet, it's like, just be lucky is not really helpful, but right. <laughs> that could right. be part of my advice to somebody as far as. Right. I guess what I, the, the caveat to that could be uh, certain people have, you know, certain genetic dispositions in terms of how their brains are wired and that kind of stuff. And that can kind of fit in that luck box as we call it. Right. But, um, in terms of what works and becoming a, a, a good or whatever it is you do, it's it's usually a lot of boring, monotonous stuff, right? Like, um, I, I think I've heard people say, you know, with acting, you're you're standing around for long periods of time. That, you know, that sort of thing. That, you know, what works isn't really sexy. Right. Um, and that same thing with diet, right? What works is actually really unsexy. Uh, but what we like to do is we give me five hacks. That's what gets gets attention, right? Give me. Give me the ways that I can lose weight without and just be easy, right? Yeah. And for some people, they come across certain diets that do feel easy to them, kind of trips their what we'll call I call the compliance algorithm, um, where it feels easy for them and whatnot. They usually get really um, kind of zealous about their approach because it works so well for them. They think it'll work well for everybody. What we know is that, that that's not necessarily the case. Um, in fact, I think what works well for one person, kind of the whole it works for me argument is less about physiology and much more about psychology. Right. It's uh, pre- is coming, preference is a big part of that, right? Big part of it. Huge part of it. Um, and that's backed up by scientific data. Now, getting back to your original question, because unfortunately I tend to squirrel when I get on these topics and go down <laughs> rabbit holes. I love it. Uh, um I think a, a big part of it is the other part of it is not just being sexy, but Everyone likes to feel validated in what they do. So, for example, I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan myself personally of flexible dieting, which is, you know, I track my calories, my macros, and whatever kind of fits in that uh, domain, I don't limit myself from specific food choices. Now, the caveat to that is based on what my macros are will actually end up determining my food choices because if I'm in a fat loss phase and my calories are down to, you know, 2,000, 2,500, I'm going to eat a lot differently than I would if I was, you know, eating 3,500 calories a day where I've got a lot more flexibility. Right. So, you know, that being said, um, I don't, you know, make myself limit myself from any foods. I don't, nothing's off limits for me. Um, and that's something that the reason I kind of came to that was, you know, I, I come from a bodybuilding background. That's where I, I got into kind of the fitness industry. And I found myself in my off seasons because I was so restricted during contest prep because I would, you know, cut out all these quote unquote bad foods um, that when it came to my off season, you know, if my and I was in college at the time, if my buddies ordered a pizza, I found myself I couldn't just have one slice of pizza. It would be like the entire thing. Yeah. You know, um, it, it actually that's called a disinhibition reflex and is actually kind of. Um, tends to be pretty common with people who have really restrictive diets, that if they kind of go off a little bit, they just end up all the way off, right? Yep. And um, so what I started doing was, you know, in my own mind kind of said, well, is it really that one slice of pizza that's taking me off or is it the fact that that one slice causes me to eat the whole thing? So rather than trying to restrict myself, I said, you know what, I'm just going to have calorie and macro targets and I'm going to hit those, but if I want something in those, then I'm going to have it. And what happened was my compliance just became so much better. 
Right. And it felt easy. It felt easy for me because it felt like, okay, if you're telling me that I, cause what would happen is I would be binging on that pizza and I would like in my mind saying, I'm never going to do this again. And then well, of course I'm going to do it again. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if you keep doing the same thing and expect different results, it's the definition of insanity. So doing that kind of tripped my, what I call the compliance algorithm and it's all easy for me. So I became a big proponent of flexible dieting, but I also never, you know, so the, the step further to that would be if I took that and said, flexible dieting boosts your metabolism 50%, you know, that sort of thing. And what you're seeing a lot now is people have a diet that they felt like worked well for them. And then they kind of do, instead of saying, this is what I prefer, this is what I like, this is what feels easiest for me, which is a completely suitable and valid reason to do a particular diet. Instead of saying that, they kind of go through mental gymnastics in order to try to justify why what they're doing is the best thing for everyone. Right. And, no, I I, and I've literally done that too. I've been there. I've, I've experienced that. Sure. And that's, and that's part of that is being enthusiastic. But part of that is also wanting to feel validated in your approach. And part of that is also, you probably felt like this particular thing worked so well for me. This has to be the secret for everyone. Right. right? And unfortunately we're all, people want to make, I hear this a lot. People say, you know, this diet really worked for me. Now, it probably didn't work for you because your physiology is somehow much different. It probably worked for you because it just felt easier and you were more compliant to it, right? Um, that's one of the things because, you know, we've got people out there who claim you can't lose weight if you're eating carbs, right? right. Now, that seems to be the popular thing right now. It's just the ketogenic diet, low-carb diets. All you have to do is use your eyeballs to know that that's not true, right? Like right. we've got literally millions of examples of people who lose weight um, eating carbohydrates. So what is it, what is true is that for some people, a ketogenic low-carb approach makes them feel satiated. Um, they enjoy those foods and they're able to adhere to it, which again, completely reasonable way, reason to do a diet. Um, but unfortunately that's not good enough for a lot of people and they kind of want to take it to the next level of, well, insulin suppresses your metabolism and makes you hungry and all these, again, mental gymnastics to try to validate why theirs is physiologically the best diet. And listen, I did a PhD in nutritional sciences and I always tell people the story. When I got to grad school, I was going to find the absolute best diet for building muscle and burning fat. And just over the course of years of having my hypotheses crushed <laughs> and hearing and when going to studies and seeing the following words calorie equated and seeing that just when you do that a lot of these differences tend to wash away right. they really do and so when we look at the most tightly controlled studies and when we equate calories and protein because protein is thermogenic and does increase energy expenditure when we equate calories, we just don't see that much of a difference between different diets. And so for what I recommend to people is, hey, that's actually a great thing because that means we are extremely flexible in what can work for everyone. And so we should choose what we actually enjoy the most and what's easiest for us to sustain. Because if you do a ketogenic diet because your favorite uh, you know, 
influencer does that, but you feel like crap and you hate it. And it's just, you know, something that feels really awful, but you're just clinging on for dear life because this is what you, you want to do. But how successful are you going to be with that approach? It's, it's just not going to be very successful. And, and, and if it is, it's going to be, you're going to be miserable doing it. So knowing that there's something better for you or, 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 or denying that there's something better for you feels unhealthy. Right. And I think one of this gets kind of into cognitive dissonance as well, where we, we can hold, we become so entrenched in our beliefs that, and this is what uh, you follow me on social media. So, you know, I spent a lot of my time, myself and Spencer spent a lot of our time fighting cognitive dissonance Yeah, where we're literally showing, you know, scientific facts and evidence and people don't want to they don't want to acknowledge it right and they don't acknowledge something that is outside of their outside of their echo chamber but that's that's actually not just a problem with nutrition i think that's a problem with a lot of different things i mean politics is the same thing there was actually a study years ago where they gave republicans and democrats like hardliners um information that would either support or refute a belief they had and they found that both pieces of information were equally as effective at just further entrenching them. So meaning something that refuted their belief actually just made them double down and become even more entrenched in their belief. Yeah. So when you're dealing with that kind of cognitive dissonance, it's really hard to make headway. And I find that most people, and you said you had been there yourself, uh, I think from what you said, yeah. um, most people have to come to that realization on their own rather than having it forced down their throats, you know? Yeah. I mean, the last, the, the last couple of years I've, and, 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 and by the way, in, in, in no small part due to guys like you and your book and, and, and Mike Isratel and Spencer and, and like, but this has been a, it's been a few years where I really have been trying to shed, but I've been on diet since I was five to some, to some, uh, uh, you know, to some degree or another. And I, and I, you know, developed, uh, the habit of, of sneaking food really, really young, which, which was utterly detrimental to all of the diets I was put on. And then even came up to bite me in the butt when I decided to go on diets as an adult. Um, but I found personally, there was just something easier about, placing the onus on the food as the mm-hmm. the causative point for fat gain versus the food is an is an inanimate object it's a thing there mm-hmm. it ha, there's no it's not doing anything to me it's my consumption and my relationship with it that i need to figure out so if if you know and and by the way living in hollywood which is the hotbed of where i think a lot of this these kind of movements spring up. Sure. I've gone through, you know, the gluten movement, the anti-gluten movement, the grain brain movement, the lectin movement, the, and you know, and, and what I've kind of realized recently was it just goes from like picking one thing of a group to ultimately picking the entire group. Like let's just take out this one type of carbohydrate to now you see, all carbohydrates are bad, you, you know? Um, yeah. And it could be like uh, factory farmed red meat is really bad. And here are the reasons they're feeding the cow's corn to all meat is bad. And, and you can just follow it there, you know, 
the whole lectin thing, I go like, what? This is insanity. You know what I mean? <laughs> it feels yeah. like it feels really crazy to me. I, and and then, you know, my wife has friends who who are start you start to see new movements turn up where one of them starts advocating that everyone needs a fecal transplant because our gut biome is so oh, destroyed. And I'm like, that's something for really, really, really sick people like yeah. You know, they do that in a hospital and you're saying everybody needs that and everybody needs to eat only pastured eggs. And I'm like, you know, this is just not feasible at the end of the day. So I've been trying yeah. to turn my head around, but there were a number of years where I just believed that carbohydrates were the thing that made me fat. And so long as I didn't eat right. them. And, and, and as far like to your point, uh, the cognitive dissonance, I, I would go on, uh, uh, portions of the keto diet where I was eating hot dogs and nacho cheese and I wouldn't right. lose weight. And that wasn't an indicator for me that it wasn't, you know <laughs> what I mean? It was like, well, I'm not, I'm not doing it cleanly enough. So let me, let me move right. to chicken thighs and broccoli and olive oil. And then even when I do that, if I ate to my heart's content, I still wouldn't lose weight. So it's like, okay, I'm going to do this, but be a little hungry. And then I'm losing weight. Right. Um, right. And so now I'm just kind of, and, and by the way, having addiction, uh, issues and all of this, I can, I, you know, there was a, also a point where I was like, sugar is off the table, period, because yeah. that'll make me like relapse and I'll be just, you know, at the bar drunk at the end of the day if I start the day with a donut. And now I'm kind of like, no, you know, I can have, as long as it, you know, I have enlightened, there is sugar in that. It's, it's obviously low calorie, but, but it's, it's not destroying me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I'm, I'm still within the parameters that are set calorically. Correct. You know, I, I think a lot of this, Ethan, is that, um, I, I hate to, you know, I don't like inferring intent with people because that can be, um, a slippery slope, but sure. I think a lot of, I think the fitness industry att attracts a lot of shysters yeah. and a lot of charlatans um, because it's easy because you are dealing with people's self-image, which, you know, people become desperate with this stuff, like absolutely desperate. I've coached, you know, before I was kind of a quote unquote influencer, <laughs> I coached, you know, 1700 people over the course of like 15 years. And I just saw so many people who were just so desperate um, and it really, it was sad. And I, I have come to, you know, I think you coming from the background you did of, you know, being very overweight, um, you know, people, people love to kind of try to get into camps and entrench themselves. And we see this in everything. We see this, what's going on right now, right? If you're, if you, uh, not to get too political, but if you say something like, well, I believe black lives matter, then you people say, well, you're saying cops lives don't matter. No, <laughs> both things can be true. Right. <laughs> and just by saying, you know, I don't condone the violence from the people protesting. People say, what well, are you saying that you don't believe that, you know, this, and it's like, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. Right. So we, we call those, I, I call this out all the time in the fitness industry. We call that straw man, you know, straw manning. Yeah meaning you create an argument that the person didn't actually make. So I think a lot of these shysters, they find that it's very easy to get people to buy in because all you have to do, if you learn anything about marketing, you don't sell your product. You sell a problem, 
Right. So you sell, you, you create a problem and then your product is the solution to that problem. Um, so if you look at any of these, 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 they all have the same playbook. Here's what's this, this one thing is making you sick. It's this one, you know, nutrient or carbohydrates or whatever it is. They pick it out right now. It's, it's, you know, the carnivore diet. People will tell you that it's, uh, you know, that it's phytates and plants, that plants are, you know, trying to slowly poison us, which I find absolutely hilarious. Right. Um, so we, we you just you create the problem and then you sell the solution essentially. Um, so people who say things like, well, this is really nuanced. Um, it's, it's, it's complicated. There's multiple issues, you know? So I used to be a little bit more firmly entrenched in the camp of, you know, obesity is not a disease. It's an individual responsibility, you know, that sort of thing. And then you start looking at the research more and then you realize, you know what? There is personal responsibility here, 100%. But there's also what makes people prone to stuff. My, my PhD advisor, Don Lehman, one of my favorite quotes I ever heard from him, he said, genetics can load the gun for obesity, but behavior pulls the trigger. Sure. Right? So what that means is, you know, it's, it's easy to, to say things like, well, obese people are lazy or, or whatever it is. But you also don't realize if you're not somebody who's prone to that, Obese people have a much higher reward system in their brain for food. Yeah. It is far different how food rewards them compared to somebody like me, who I've never really you know, been overweight except when I did a YOLO bulk for bodybuilding. <laughs> right. um, um, you know, I've never been overweight. So food for me, like I'm not sitting around all day thinking about what I'm going to eat. Like, you know, every once in a while I'll be like, oh, man, that'd be really good, you know. But, um, you know, for some obese people, it can almost be like – you know, that's all they think about is, is what is my next meal? What am I going to have? You know, because food is such a high reward um, thing for their brain. Yeah. So that's, that's part of it. And then you also read studies like when they surveyed um, women who were obese and found that over 60% of them had been sexually assaulted sometime in their life. Right. So trauma can also be a trigger for this possibly, as well as when they interviewed them, they said, you know, I, I became obese, so nobody would touch me right. or, um, you know, I felt like I could defend myself better. So this is a very complicated issue and trying to boil it down to like, oh yeah, it's just sugar that made everybody obese. Right. Okay. Like, so what you're saying and then kind of saying, you know, re retracting that back saying, okay, well, and this means that you can't get leaner eating sugar. Well, there's something in science we call Occam's razor, which is, uh, basically, the lay interpretation is when all things are equal, the simplest answer is usually true. It, it's actually the, the actual literal interpretation is the hypothesis that requires the least amount of, of assumptions is probably true. So some of these, um, like you look at, for example, the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity, which claims that it's not calories that matter, it's insulin. That uh, carbohydrates, even in the calorie, like even if you're eating low calories, Carbohydrates secrete insulin. Insulin traps fat in fat cells. That causes you your body to sense it's starving and you overeat in response, right? Right. So there have been a lot of studies on this now and have shown that, that they have not been able to show this, um, this model to be true under many different conditions. And every time they show this, the proponents of this model come out and they say, well, it's just 
they didn't do this thing right. And it just needed to be longer. And they didn't do this. And one of the problems with that is you are really assuming the human body is extremely rigid in what it can tolerate. <laughs> yeah. If this is going to be true, right? And even if it was true, it's not a very robust hypothesis if it requires all these other things to be true. And what we know is the human body is extremely flexible. If it wasn't, we wouldn't be here today because our species would have died out a long time ago. So this idea that, you, can, you know, seed oils, you can't, you know, you can't get healthy if you're eating seed oils or, or carbohydrates. Or you, can't get, you can't lose weight and be healthy if you're eating carbohydrates. No, we have examples of all different types of people who have been able to improve their health through diet and nutrition using all different types of diets. What do they all have in common? Well, most of them have in common that they allow people to lose weight. There was a meta-analysis by Noud et al. Um, in 2014. And for uh, people who aren't familiar, a meta-analysis is basically a where they take studies that have similar um, that are similar in design and test similar things, and they combine them all the data to get kind of a consensus, right? So this meta-analysis looked at all right. Of people who lost weight um, with different diets equal in calories, did what difference did the carbohydrate and fat ratios make on the markers of health, right? And what they found was that 95 to 99% of the health improvements from diet were completely explained just by the weight loss. So, for example, people make a big deal about inflammation. Right. And you'll have people on all sides like vegans will say meat is inflammatory. You know that you if you eat any meat, it's going to cause you to have inflammation and this and that, you know, the whole game changers argument. Well, if you look at very tightly controlled studies where either they feed lean meats as the protein source or plant based proteins, there was a study that did this. I think it was for six weeks and had both groups in a calorie deficit. They both lost the same amount of weight. One group was eating their protein almost exclusively from animals, one group from plants. Both groups improved their improved their markers of inflammation by the exact same amount. Right. And same thing for uh, sugar. So there was a study a while back where they looked at high sugar intake versus low sugar intake, calories, protein, everything equated. And they found that both groups improved their inflammatory markers. Uh, and regardless of the sugar intake, because both groups reduce the body weight. So if you just lose weight and keep it off, you get much healthier. Now, so for me, when I start with somebody and trying to figure out what diet should they be on or what's best with them, I always start from the perspective of, okay, what is the diet that they're going to best be able to adhere to? Now, that portion of it is very individualistic. I have met people who swear up and down by intermittent fasting. I've met people who swear up and down by keto, swear up and down by plant-based, whatever, whatever you can find, whatever you can think of and dream up. There are people who will swear up and down by it, yeah. probably because it felt easy for them. But So here's the caveat to that. I tell people, I'm like, your anecdote, your individual experience is extremely important for you. It means almost nothing for everyone else, right? So when it comes to making broad recommendations for a lot of people, which is what I have to do because 
I write books and, and make posts on the interwebs. Um, I almost rely exclusively on empirical data because that gives us the best answer as to what works for uh, for most people. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally. No, I mean, that's what you have to do. You have to go like statistically, this is where the evidence points. And that doesn't mean that anecdote and empirical evidence can't exist in concert, and they should. And I would never dismiss so, you know, people say, well, well, I went on a ketogenic diet and I was eating more calories and I lost weight. No, no, no. You probably felt like you were eating more calories because you felt satisfied. You felt satiated. Right. So it felt like that. But I promise you, you're reducing your calorie intake, right? Right. Or um, their their muscles were just shitting out all the liquid that was stored in them. That's also true. So that's the other, that's a great point. So there, we have quite a bit of data on this now um, that people who go on ketogenic diets lose a lot of weight really rapidly in the initial stages because of water loss and possibly some lean tissue loss. Um, we do see higher rates of nitrogen excretion during the initial phases of a ketogenic diet. So there was actually a study uh, by NIH that came out that looked at um, like a low-fat diet, high fiber versus a ketogenic diet on satiety. And they found that um, spontaneously people on the ketogenic diet ate a few hundred calories less, but people on the on the like high fiber plant-based diet actually ate like 700 calories less. Like, so it was actually, the, the conclusion was that, pl that this plant-based like high fiber diet was probably more satiating than the ketogenic diet. But what was interesting was even though the plant-based was eating less calories, the ketogenic diet group lost just as much weight. Right. And kind of the critics of that study will say, well, look, you know, they must be getting some boost to metabolism if they're eating more calories than no, they 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 analyzed that. They just they basically lost a lot of water. Right. Right. So now that can be again. That's where psychology comes in. And for some people who have had trouble losing weight in the past, maybe that's helpful because it gets them bought in early. You know what I mean? So yeah. if somebody starts a diet, they lose five ten pounds their first week. They feel great. You know, they're feeling like they're getting results. The the problem becomes is that if if it then disheartens them that the next week they don't lose anything or only lose a pound or two you know, they need to understand why that's happening. So like my thing is never, I look at all diets as tools in the tool belt. It's just, you know, depending on what you use is going to depend on the person. And let's just be real about why, why it's working and not do mental gymnastics about why, you know, it's due to some weird trumped up mechanism that you, you developed because you read you know, a chapter out of a biochemistry book. Yeah, I, I, I do. I, I think about this all the time and I, and I try to psych, psychoanalyze myself and go, why was that true for me? And why is it true for other people? What does it matter at the end of the day? Can't you just say, I prefer this? And I think the reality is that, as you said, diets are difficult. They're not just easy. It, you know, a diet... Uh, or any kind of a restrictive diet at all requires effort. And therefore, you hope you're doing the most efficient one. And therefore, if you believe the one you're doing is the most efficient, maybe it has some a placebo effect or something. I, I, I don't know what it is, but it does seem harder, even from my conversations with people, to go like, no, it's just the one I like. You know, it's just the I one think, that's working for me. I think 
there's a couple things to that. And I want to also want to touch on the placebo effect because I'm really glad you brought that up because that's a huge thing people don't even think about. Um, I think people like to feel validated and justified. I think that's part of it. Yeah. Um, I think people like to feel like they're special in terms of, um, well, I tried, you hear, I tried everything and this thing is finally the thing that worked for me. So it's kind of like discovering the magic bullet, right? right. Um, so I think that's part of it. And you are absolutely right when it comes to placebo. So people will tell me, you know, I, I tried everything and then I read about the ketogenic diet. And I did it and it worked. Well, you were very enthusiastic about that diet. You self-selected that diet. Right. I bet, of course it worked initially. Of course. Um, if you look at some of the studies on placebo, <laughs> I, I have always been kind of a skeptic. So when somebody makes a claim, my first initial thought that runs through my head is, hmm, I wonder if that's bullshit. <laughs> and, and then I kind of, I, I set out, and I do that with myself too. So like I set out, everything I do, I set out to disprove it. Because if it stands the test of me trying to disprove it, then it probably is super robust right. and a good tool. Does sure. that make sense? Totally. So rather than just being, you know, there's there's downsides to being an early adopter of things. There, there really are. Um, and you see this because you see people who, like they, they buy into everything when it first comes out. And they, they end up looking like they're chickens running around with their heads cut off because they're changing their mind so much. So now after reading more about the power of suggestion, anytime I read any study, I kind of look at it and go, yeah, wake me up when there's 10 of those because I just don't believe it yet. Yeah. So there's – and that's – that probably sounds like a bad thing coming from a scientist, but it's actually a good thing. So, no, that's your job as a scientist, isn't it? Yeah, well, so – People get frustrated with science because the scientific consensus is very slow to change. But that's really important that it's slow to change because if we just changed every time a study came out, based, you know, that that had a certain methodology or what, like we would be flip flopping all the time. Yeah, you know, it's the same thing with government. I mean, you know, our our government people complain about how slow it is, but it is designed to be that way because you would not want a situation where somebody could come to power. And just make wide sweeping changes. It it may sound good until it's the guy on the other side of the aisle who you don't like, right? right? So that's why our government is structured that way, and that's kind of why science is structured that way too. You don't want to make broad sweeping changes to our current understanding of the universe if we're not really, really, really confident of it. So, getting back to the power of suggestion, the placebo effect. There was a just to give people an idea how powerful this is. We, are, we have a lot of confidence that caffeine, for example, is a pretty good performance booster. Like not, It's not going to turn you into Superman, but the research shows that consistently caffeine improves performance. There was a recent study where they uh, did four groups of people doing a, um, cycling, endurance cycling. Mm -hmm. And they had they, one group of people uh, didn't get caffeine, told they didn't get it. Another group got it, told they didn't get it. Another group told they got it, didn't get it, and another group told they got it and got it, okay. right? So four, four different groups. Um, and what they found was it did not matter at all whether or not they got the caffeine. What mattered was yes. what were they told. Wow. And so people – now people misinterpret this, and they, I, I had somebody – I brought the study up, and somebody said, well, does that mean caffeine's bullshit? I said, no, no. It just means that your beliefs about what caffeine does are much more powerful than what it actually does. Yeah. So even more impressive was a study a couple of years ago. Um, 
and this was a big study. They looked at a lot of stuff, but um, I'm just going to pick out one one parameter that they looked at, and that's the hormone ghrelin. I don't know if you're are you familiar with ghrelin? No. Oh, so is ghrelin, that the thing you get uh, that diminishes as you persist on a diet? Uh, that's leptin. leptin. So leptin is kind of the the hormone that acts in opposition to ghrelin. So ghrelin, as you diet, ghrelin goes up and okay. increases your hunger level. Oh, okay. uh, it would be the simplest way to explain it. It's a it's a gut hormone. Um, so we expect to see people who have higher levels of ghrelin will have higher perceived ratings of hunger. Um, so they did a study where they they isolated out people based on their their genetics and people who were low secretors of ghrelin versus high secretors of ghrelin. And then they randomized them and told them random, told them randomly. So meaning people who were low ghrelin secretors, some of them got told that they were low, but some of them got told they were high. Okay. And people who were high ghrelin secretors, some of them got told they were high, but some got told they were low. Guess what happened? Their genetics did not matter. Right. Those who are told they had high are hungry. Those were told that. So not only that. Not only the subjective feelings, the people who had low ghrelin, who were told they had high, they observed their ghrelin levels actually increase. Wow. So this is where people people get offended by the idea of the placebo because they think that that means that they're somehow stupid or that they've been tricked, right? But that's not true at all. It, it, it's, more, it's much more powerful than that. The power of suggestion is huge. It actually can change your physiology. There was a study done a while back looking at um, uh, allergies, I think it was. No, no, sorry, sorry, I got crossed up. They did a study on uh, Parkinson's disease where they gave uh, placebo and told people that it would help with their Parkinson's. And guess what? Actually, their motor functioning actually improved empirically, not like a subjective measure, an actual empirical measure. Right. So... This goes to show you that – so we used to think the brain was kind of disconnected from the body. Like this, your body was this bag of meat and your brain controlled everything in the body. And now we know that that, that understanding of things is completely wrong, yeah. that it's all, all intertwined and you cannot separate one from the other. It's all intertwined. That's why everything in more is being understood as kind of a biopsychosocial model. Um, so yeah, just, just your beliefs – change things now obviously you can't believe that you're a bird and can fly and grow wings like that's not going to happen right so but if you you know if you go so the point is if you're going into something and you're very positive about it you believe it's going to work there's a much better chance it's going to work i use the placebo effect with my clients yeah (laughs) so i've told them you know i've done something where i'm like "Eh, i'm not sure this is actually going to do anything but i changed something just so they would um feel like uh, something was different, yeah. and I told them this will get them over their plateau. And nine times out of ten, it does. Yeah. Now, if they now the caveat to that, which doesn't make me a scumbag, is if they ask me about it, I will be honest with them and tell them what I did and why I did it. Um, but that is a huge thing that people really need to understand, um, and I think it's one of the reasons why it's so hard to interpret scientific studies in humans, is because we're all subject to our own psychology and the power of our own beliefs. Yeah. So you could, you know, yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons people, you know, all my PhD research was on lab animals and people, you know, kind of poo poo that. But the fact is you have limitations in human research as well, where 
you know, I tell people, people will see a study and they'll say, well, why wasn't it done for longer? Or why was it only 10 people? Money, money, and money. I'm not sure if you guys don't know this, but research money does not grow on trees. <laughs> well, and, I mean, listen, honestly, you'd think in the diet industry that there would be enough money. I mean, there's so much, there seems to be so much money in the diet industry in America that I would think this was so well-funded. But, but this, here's the thing. There's a lot of money in just making the claims. Right. You don't have to, in the diet industry, you don't have to prove your claims. It's not like a, uh, a pharmaceutical drug where you have to go through, you know, years of testing and you actually, you know, I know the pharmaceutical industry gets a lot of crap, but if you look at what a drug has to go through to get approval, the government kind of starts with the assumption that the drug is dangerous and not good. And the company has to prove essentially that it is and that it works. Yeah. Um, when it comes to like dietary supplements and dietary recommendations, you don't have to prove anything. You can claim basically almost whatever you want. And the onus is on the government to prove that you are wrong. Right. If they want to, if they want to indict you or something like that. So it's kind of the wild west in the fitness industry. So the, it's more of, you know, in terms of funding studies, it's like, well, why would I fund a study when I can just make a claim? Right. Start making money. Yeah. So, I, I got to be honest with you too. The way like I had, I had all of these things pretty well categorized in my mind. And now listening to way you talk about placebo, I almost go, well, if, if placebo works so well, then maybe it's okay to make these claims. But at the end of the day, I know that even placebo is limited. So I think it, yeah. it can be dangerous to the 70% that won't experience that effect or whatever. I, I, I pulled that number out of, out of my well, ass. I think- I think it's all about how you do it, right? right? Um, and I think one of the things to keep in mind too, like for example, um, I'll, I'll give both sides of this coin. Uh, vegans and low carbers do this, and those two groups are usually opposed to each other. Um, so. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 
vegans and low carbers kind of have a Machiavellian, the end justifies the means sort of approach to things. So when it comes to vegans, for example, they'll be happy to misrepresent research, uh, blatantly lie about it. Not all vegans, but some of them uh, blatantly lie about it. And their reasoning is, well, and I've heard them say this straight out. They say, well, I don't care if that's not exactly accurate. If it gets people eating less meat, what's wrong with it? Right? Yeah. Well, what's wrong with it is you're just not being honest. Right. <laughs> and then, for, and also, again, so this kind of goes back to preference. If you don't want to eat animals, and, and I think actually if it would specifically comes to veganism, um, that is the strongest by far argument that can be made for veganism is the ethical considerations. Yeah. So if that, if you believe so strongly in that, why do you need to do mental gymnastics with the science in order to justify what you're doing? Um, so when it comes to low carbers, what they'll say is they'll make up, you know, they'll misrepresent research on sugar and whatnot, but their, their justification is, well, but if it gets people eating less sugar, what's the downside? Yeah. Well, here's the downside. And nobody wants to talk about this big, dirty, big, dirty no-no in the fitness industry, eating disorders. That's right. the big downside. Because when you demonize something, you create. I always tell people, like, be very careful about how you talk about food. Because there are many people out there who develop unhealthy relationships with food because they've been so petrified that everything is going to kill them. I mean, you've literally got people who think that you have to live on ultra purified water and like almost nothing else. <laughs> you know, like, Lane, uh, my wife has a friend who drinks w b bottled water that is literally spit from a rock and caught in a glass jar. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. And it's called raw water. That's not a joke. So, so when people want to talk about privilege, this is privilege, yeah. right? Yeah. When you, have the, when you have the ability to worry about this kind of shit, right. that's privilege. <laughs> so, yeah, but I mean, that's the, that's the problem is people become so phobic. So do I, like people will hear me talk about sugar and give the studies and they'll say, well, you're, you're saying that people should eat sugar. No, that's a straw man argument. I, I think that if... If you want to have some sugar, as long as it doesn't cause you to overeat your calories, it's probably fine to do so. But I think for some people, it probably is not a good idea to have a lot of sugar because they have difficulty moderating their intake and it's not very satiating, right? But like just telling people sugar is addictive when there's no evidence or there's very little evidence of that or telling people that, um, you know, uh, that, that it's going to spike your insulin and you can't lose fat if you have high insulin and this sort of thing, like that's... That's, you're not creating a healthy environment for people. And I've met so many people who the reason they actually become overweight, the root of it is because of an eating disorder, because they have this kind of effect where they feel like if they're not perfect, then it's all for naught. Yeah. And so if they can't be perfect, they might as well not even give a shit, right? And that is something the fitness industry creates is this really high – I've met so many people who just feel like they have such a high barrier to entry to be healthier that they, that they you know, it's kind of like, well, I, I, I want to get healthy, but I just don't know where to start. Right. And it's like, you don't have to like go from like, you don't have to go from, um, you know, where you are right now and all of a sudden go to the gym five days a week for two hours a day 
and track your calories meticulously and eat high fiber, like you can start with some really small changes in your life that'll make a big difference, you know, especially when it comes to just go walk. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and likewise, if, if you do have addictive tendencies and everything's gotten so out of control, then maybe your sphere of responsibility is so small that doing something really extreme will help you get onto that path. Possibly. And I, I, I would never, you know, again, everything's tools in the tool belt for me. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that, I think, yes, that for some people, it probably works kind of in the backwards sense that they need to strip it down to the bare essentials and then they can slowly add things back in as they right but again the caveat is some people right yeah and i and you'll very rarely i always use this example of people you know people say how do i know who to trust you know because there's there's doctors over here saying this and then you say that and, and the problem is is that as people we're pretty good at when we talk to somebody we're pretty good at being able to decipher if they know more than us on a particular topic right yeah we're pretty good at that but we're awful at doing is determining of two people who are more knowledgeable than us, who is the more knowledgeable of the two. So for example, if Mike Israel and I got into a debate about like max recoverable volume versus minimum effective dose, you know, you're, you're probably going to kind of just side with the person you like the best. You know what I mean? Like right. the person who resonates the most, cause you're not going to be able to have the wherewithal to determine who's, who's the more knowledgeable of the two on the topic. Right. Although in that case, it's probably Mike, if I'm being real. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's one of those things that's very difficult. But when it comes to kind of the idea of food addiction and that sort of thing, there is some good evidence for food addiction. Right. There is good evidence. For, so people think that because I say sugar is not addictive or there's very little evidence that's addictive, that I'm saying that food isn't addictive. And that's not true. But the kind of foods that – here's what's funny about sugar addiction. When people talk about sugar addiction, they say, well, I, if I eat donuts or cookies or cakes. But that's not foods that are just high in sugar. They're also high in fat. Yeah. You're talking about you know, ultra-processed, hyper-palatable, calorically-dense foods. And what I, I got to be careful when I use the word processed because people think that just food processing in and of itself is an inherently bad thing, and that's not true. Ultra-processed foods are – I don't want to say bad because they're not bad, but they're easier to overconsume, and they have negative health outcomes if they're overconsumed because people just simply eat too many calories from them. And there's a few, there's several studies showing that that the weight you gain and the the negative impacts to health are just due to the caloric overconsumption. Right. So, and that's I, again, I think that's important because if somebody if somebody needs to cut those things out of their diet to lose weight and to to get their mental state to a point where they can adhere. That's fine. I would never say don't do that. But for some people, it has the exact opposite of effect. If you tell them you can, if you want to be healthy, you can never have this again. It will actually make them either not even try or every time they fail or can't stick to it, they will just feel like a failure. And it'll be, it'll be completely counterproductive. So again, I, you know, when people make recommendations or whatever. I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, everything, everything's on the table, right? Low carbs on the table, low sugars on the table, plant-based on the table, every different diet you can imagine is on the table. But I'm just saying, let's be honest about why it works. Right. 
I wonder why stuff like the uh, Dutch Hunger Winter and Thrifty Gene Theory, I worry that people are scared that if the, if those those types of genetic um, ideas are pushed out, that it's gonna for, that it's gonna cause people to go well. It's it's genetic, so I can't do anything about it. So I'm not gonna do anything about it. Versus the effect it's had on me, which has allowed me to understand more of my behavior. Yeah, and I think that behavior is the root of it. Right. Um, you know, I, I, not, now is there genetic components to it? Absolutely. But if it was genetic, our genetics didn't change in the last 60 years. Not not that much. Right. You know, you can't change your genetic code in, in three generations. <laughs> like that's that takes a very long time. So what is more likely is that, and what the thrifty gene hypothesis does say, is that the people who survived famines, you know, that, that passed on the genetic code, um, were probably people who had you know, we're set up to be a little bit more, as you said, thrifty with energy, yeah. right? If you were wasteful with it, um, then you probably uh, didn't survive some of these famines, right? But by the same token, obesity is a very new problem. Yeah. And we don't all become obese, right? So, that means there's clues as to why certain why certain people do and why certain people don't. I think it boils back to, yes, certainly genetics load the gun, but behavior pulls the trigger. But I think a lot of people get caught up in the X's and O's of diet rather than focusing on behavior, right? So they, they think about it, uh, and, and you can even speak to your own experience, Ethan, is um, when, you, when you had a diet like fail or not work, was it because your carb and fat ratio wasn't right or you, because you ate after 6 p.m. Or, or you ate before noon or whatever else it is? Or was it that you just kind of stopped being as diligent with it and then it, then it, then it stopped working? 100% of the time in my experience that a, a, a diet went sideways was due to my error. And now that being said, a lot of those times were probably due to either busyness or stress or a coping mechanism or all these other things, right? So we need to be, we need to, I always, uh, I, teach a, I, te I teach a course called Science and Nutrition. Um, and one of the things I said, it's kind of geared towards coaches um, for nutrition. And one of the things I said is when you talk about your clients and you do your client check-ins and your clients screw up one of the things you really want to have is you want to have two things empathy and accountability so meaning that if i have a client who screwed up i'm not going to browbeat them about screwing up because the chances are they've already done that to themselves yeah especially if i'm dealing with somebody who's been on a lot of diets they they feel like a failure you know that kind of stuff just me berating them is it may look good for the biggest loser in tv but it's not really going to help them very much. And in fact, it's actually going to demotivate them. Right. Right. So, but that being said, I also can't just be empathetic and not put some personal accountability with that. Right. Because if it's just, it's nothing is, a, if nothing's their fault, then there's no impetus for change. Right. So I always come from the perspective of empathy and accountability. So like I said, when people fail a diet, 
it's usually, usually people don't fail diets when they're like, when it's like, I always like use the, uh, the, the example of binge eating, right? Like nobody binge eats at 9 a.m. in the morning after they've gotten eight hours of sleep and they're not stressed. Sure. Right. Like it just doesn't, it usually doesn't happen. I want to say never, but very rarely. Right. So when do we, when do we go off the rails? I mean, even Joe Rogan talked about this on his podcast. You get back at home late. You don't have meals available that you kind of planned out. You had a stressful day and you kind of level of, hopefully I can say this, fuck it is pretty high, Sure. you know? So that's, I, I always call, um, I always want to try to get my clients to not go into fuck it mode and to stay mindful. And that can be very, very difficult. But part of that is just behavior change and the habits you form. So, and that's one of the things I said, you said you, I think you said you read fat loss forever, right? Yeah. Yeah. So as you know, like I spent a significant amount of time, not, not really even talking that much about physiology, but just talking about behavior change yeah. and behavior modification. That's a huge portion of it. Just building new behaviors and habits. I mean, that's that one of the biggest lies in the history of, uh, of diets and fitness is that it's just about discipline and motivation. You know, if you just have discipline and motivate, listen, nobody is disciplined hundred percent of the time and nobody's motivated hundred percent of the time. In fact, I tell people, um, this is more of a speaking to like my powerlifting career, but I'm like, if you think I'm motivated every time I come into the gym, you're out of your mind, right. you know, <laughs> like it's, it's probably about half and maybe even less than half sometimes. Right. But I have goals and I understand that there's a certain amount of work that goes into getting that goal. So just like when I wake up and I brush my teeth in the morning, that is a habit and a behavior. And it's also, um, I know that if I, I'm not motivated to brush my teeth, I'm not like sitting there in front of the mirror, like psyching myself up, listening to heavy metal. <laughs> I, I just know that if I don't brush my teeth, they're going to go to shit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So your nutrition and your health is the same thing. If you don't put in some effort, it's going to go to shit. So, Motivation doesn't need to enter into the equation, but what we need to do is build habits. Now, the kind of habits you build depend on what is sustainable for you, what you can adhere to, that sort of thing. But, you know, when it comes to it, one of the, one of the habits, I always say you have to have some form of restriction, but you can pick the form of restriction that works for you, right? So for me, that is I count calories, right? Or I count my protein, carbs, and fats. For some people, that feels extremely rigid and stressful. For me, it feels liberating. Because if you can tell me I can eat what I want, so long as I fit this certain you know, set of macros, I don't really have problems with adherence. Yeah. And I'm not saying that like flippantly. I'm just saying for me, I don't have that problem. But if you told me I had to do keto, <laughs> you know, I'd probably be – like looking at my fruit loops in the morning, like, you know, like I would have real problems with adherence. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I, I will say this, as far as behavior goes, like one of my biggest things where I can just say this was entirely behavioral is like the idea of cooking when I'm hungry. If I wait until I'm too mm. hungry and then I cook a little extra oil, a little extra yeah. whatever goes in and it's not as diligent. And as far as ca counting calories, my my journey in counting calories is less than two years old. And the yeah. first couple of weeks, 
I was like doing math all day, thinking about stuff on Calorie King and different things that <laughs> had like a five calorie difference between a breast of chicken. And then I'm finding like Zaki Farms versus Rocky Farms chicken breast. You yeah. know what? Like insanity. And it yeah. was a lot of work for two or three weeks. And now yeah. it doesn't seem like work at all today. Correct. And I think one of the things I will tell people is no matter your dietary choice, I think that counting your macros or counting calories or tracking your nutrition is an exercise everyone should do at least for a few months. And here's why. Um, the idea that we could eat intuitively and stay lean, that probably would have been true 100 years ago. Yeah. But today's food environment, um, and in a situation where we're very sedentary, um, and we have free access to cheap, hyper-palatable, calorically dense foods, I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to intuitively control your weight in most cases. Um, some people who are obese-resistant in terms of they just move a lot and expend a lot of energy just naturally, that may, be, may not be the case. But for most of us, that's not going to be the case. For me, it's not the case. I can't, I can't just eat whatever I want and not, not gain weight. Now, for some people who watch me, they may seem like I can eat whatever I want and, and, uh, and not gain weight, but it's not the truth. So what happens is when you – and this, this also kind of goes into something we haven't touched on yet, which is underreporting. Right. You were probably shocked at what you were actually eating, is my guess. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it was a, it was a, it was very bizarre because I was I was going from keto to low cal. You know, not to say I wasn't low cal on keto too, because I had been losing right. weight on keto. But the the switch from like chicken thighs to chicken breast, it, it was a lot to think about, and what. What actually happened was I had more food uh, in Ooh. in volume. Um, yeah, but fat's the, dense. People don't realize fat's very dense. It's so dense, and and then the crazy thing was how little fat I was allowed to have. So I wasn't ever, I never even knew before two years ago that fat had two plus times the calories per gram of carbohydrates yep. and protein. I had no idea. And so the first time I was like, oh, I'm going to have a salad and I'll have a couple tablespoons of olive oil. It was like, er, no, you won't. Fuck that. <laughs> yeah. It was, no, it was wild to discover these things. Well, I think the other thing is too is you don't you get a, you don't get a sense of portion sizes, right? So when they um, survey when they've surveyed people in the past, they find that most people over or sorry underreport their calorie intake by thirty to fifty percent. Now, here's where this gets into emotion and people get offended because if I tell somebody that they and they tell me they're eating eighteen hundred calories a day or fifteen hundred calories a day, and I say, well, you're probably underreporting, they think what I'm saying is you're lying, right? That's not what I'm saying. I think most people have a really poor idea of what serving sizes are. If you want to be distraught, go way out a serving of peanut butter. Oh, my or God. a serving of ice cream or a serving of cereal uh, or serving of nuts. And you will be absolutely – if you've never done it before, it will blow your mind. I'm telling you, if you've eaten a bowl of ice cream, you've eaten four servings of ice cream yeah. at least. You just, and but people say, you know, they track it as okay. Well, this said it had 150 calories in it. Yeah, 
for a fourth of what you ate. Yeah, <laughs> right. So I think that that is something that'll be mind blowing to a lot of people. And it's kind of like, um, and, but, I really but like notice work. also most of the things you're talking about, the, they're fats that are, that yes. are, that are taking up the bulk of those calories. Correct. Correct. And it's, you know, you can, I'll always tell people like the reason restaurant food tastes so much better. It's not because they put a lot of sugar in it. It's because they put a lot of fat in it. Right. You know, there's a lot of oil that goes into that stuff. And that is just the quickest way to add up calories really quickly. And, and people, again, I, I don't want to isolate, you know, nutrients and, and, and say that this is why we're fat. Um, because it's not, it's, it's, it's a, it's a combination of a lot of things as we've discussed. But if you look at, you know, people wanted to make sugar the culprit. Well, if you look at sugar intake in the U S over the last, um, hundred years, it goes up linearly and pretty much linearly associated with obesity until 20 years ago where it dropped, yeah. started dropping back and, but obesity kept rising. So if this, again, if, if sugar is the cause of obesity, how could you have obesity going up when sugar is going down? And what, what you do find is that calories have kept going up and added fats have actually kept going up as well. So <laughs> it's, it's just a quick way to accumulate calories. And like you said, people just don't realize it. But I think that after doing that for a period of time, you really get a better idea of what's in food. I still tell people I've done a PhD in nutritional sciences, which is the highest level of education you can do for that. Um, and the most I ever learned about nutrition was literally just when I got into bodybuilding and, and then I'm going to show my age. You know, now we have apps, you know, we, we've, we've got our own app now, shameless plug. No, um, plug it, please. I love yeah, these apps. So, uh, carbon diet coach. We'll have to, we'll have to let you try it out. Um, and basically it's just a, an app on your iPhone or Android that, um, coaches you nutritionally. And we have, you know, it can be customized to the user. We have, you know, balanced diets. We have, um, you know, you can do ketogenic if you want. You can do reduced carb. You can do plant-based. Whatever you want, it's, it's available. But it, it's an algorithm my wife and I and my friend Keith Crocker, who's a dietitian and a fellow coach, wrote. And um, basically, uh, you enter in your information. It gives you nutritional recommendations based on your individual goal, how fast, like the rate of weight loss or gain or whatever you're going for. And then it adjusts those uh, based on your check-ins every week, just like a coach would. It also has a uh, a nutrition tracker in it that a lot of people have said, holy crap, even if I didn't use the coach, I would still use this because it's way better than my fitness pal or anything else out there. So it's been really cool. We've uh, We launched it in less than a month. We've got almost 10,000 users on it. That's amazing. Um, so anyways, <laughs> I really, I really think these things can be a game changer because I, I, you know, as a kid, I remember seeing calorie books, which it was, yeah, so it was much more complicated. Oh, I, I tell people, I'm like, listen, listen, people are like, oh, I got to track this. I'm like, listen, stop, stop complaining to me. Really? Like when I first got into this, I literally had the complete book of calorie counts. That's about an inch and a half thick. Yeah. And I took it to the store. And food that didn't have labels on it, I just would flip through the pages and find what it had, right? But that was really great for me because that I never learned more about nutrition than I did doing that. But now you have, I mean, literally, you can find anything now. So, I mean, we even got like our app has a barcode scan. You just scan a barcode, boom, it comes up, wow. right? So, um, yeah, it's pretty, pretty cool stuff. Um, so, there's a lot of tools out there now. And, like you said, I think, 
I think that that's one of the reasons we developed this was, you know, we coach people nutritionally as well, but not everybody can afford hundreds of dollars a month for a nutrition coach. Right. So like ours, our app is uh, $9.99 a month. And I know RP has one like where Mike and, and, um, and Spencer work for, um, that, that is also, it's more of a, I think a kind of a diet template app sort of thing. But I think uh, theirs is like in a similar in a similar price point, yeah. And it's probably very good. I've never used it. It's probably very good. Um, so there you go, RP. So uh, one of our competitors. Shameless plug for you guys. But but um, but, but but you guys, you know that that I mean, you're both kind of advocating for similar things. Of course, yeah, because we we're honest scientists. Yeah, you know, and, and if you find people who are, and probably. Uh, Ethan, one of the things you found is amongst the true experts in the field, some of the words you very rarely hear are best, worst, never, always. We just, we don't really use those words because we've had them beaten out of us through, through doing research and making strong claims, you know? Right. Um, and, and, and we usually, like, if you ask a question, we're going we're gonna to give a lot of nuance we're going to create a lot of you know background on that, um, just so people don't misinterpret what we say. So you know it's very funny when you see people just like so confidently state that it's this one thing or this one secret that's going to turn around your life, and it's like, you know, do you, do you really believe that? I think what I found over the course of my life and being uh, in nutrition. I always joke that I think partly is because everybody eats. Yeah. So everybody has an opinion about nutrition. Whereas if I told people I was a theoretical physicist uh, focusing on string theory, they probably wouldn't have a conversation with me about string theory. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but people believe what they want to believe. And there's, I always tell people when I get in debates with people online, you've probably seen some of them, I'm sure. I kind of um, love them, to be honest with you. They're so much fun to watch. <laughs> Um, I'm not doing that because I think I'm going to change the person's opinion who I'm talking to. I, I don't think I am. I'm doing it because I'm hoping, and people have told me this, somebody who's watching, that I'm just going to plant that little seed of doubt that causes them to start questioning what they thought they knew, right? And what ha I've had so many people who have messaged me and say, I used to hate you. And then I started, you know, started looking into this stuff more. And now I realized that I was fully, you know, cognitively dissonant and, and, and didn't know what I was talking about. And now it's like opened up my eyes. And I tell you, like you talked about it, Ethan, like um, kind of looking at like energy balance, for example, calories in versus calories out. Some people don't like it. I think a lot of people don't like it because there is with energy balance, there is an inherent element of responsibility that's on the individual, Right. right? But I find that quite freeing, quite liberating, because that means you are in control to a certain extent, you know, and some people find that very uh, terrifying, but I find that extremely liberating. And I, I do, too. Now, I just spent yes. a long time feeling better when I could go, well, it's just carbohydrates or it's just lectins or gluten or whatever it was at the time. Sure. If I could just go like, it's that thing that it, I'm allergic to in some way that is not scientifically discoverable, but that's what it is. And so I excise that from my life and I'm better. That somehow had a beneficial effect on my mindset. I, right. At the end of the day, it's, it's just not 
kind of the reality. And I do, I agree with you. I feel much freer now and my parameters are much, um, less stringent and, and I, and I can move through the world in an easier way. Now there's still stuff like I wouldn't go and have a milkshake somewhere, even if I could fit it into my macros that day, I wouldn't do that because I don't think I'd feel good at the end of it. Uh, yeah, for a number of reasons. Be, right. And part of that could be just that also brings back feelings of when you might not have been able to control that. Right. You know what I mean? So I, again, like I will never fault somebody for the way they go about doing things. It's just more about, you know, let's be honest about why stuff's working or why stuff doesn't work. And I think, you know, again, with that energy balance stuff, it can be really hard. Yeah. Because what... When I say calories in, calories out, what people hear is you're eating too much. Right. Right. Which is true. But, but here's the big caveat. You may be eating something that already feels very challenging for you, but not losing weight. Yeah. Right. So I'm not saying that you're not feeling like that. It's not difficult. I'm just saying for you as an individual, your current energy expenditure levels and what your goals are, you're eating too much. Yeah. And to that point, when I switched from high fat to low fat, the volume of food jumped up so much that I was actually had trouble a little bit going like this, this, I feel like I'm overeating. It was the most bizarre thing ever. (laughs) The, The amount of food was so much greater than I was used to that it almost threw me off. I thought there's no way I lose weight. And for the first few days I didn't, I gained weight, but that was the carbohydrates. Um, Lane, I know we've been talking for a while. I got to ask you one more thing and, and, and tip my cap to you Uh, over my, um, endless tenure as a, as a uh, amateur professional dieter. (laughs) I, I, I don't ever remember running into the idea of maintenance periods or diet breaks yeah. on diets and never ran into the idea of reverse dieting until I kind of was reading your book. And and that to me has been the most powerful tool over the last couple of years because, you you know, most of the diets I've done, it's like, this is how you eat forever or yeah. or there's like two versions, like you eat almost nothing for months and then you eat a little bit more and then you're done. And those (laughs) diets always, when I was done, if I did it perfectly, I would lose a ton of weight. But then the minute you're done, the weight's back. It's just coming back really rapidly. And I have noticed that taking the diet breaks actually gear me up to the idea of what life will be like not on a diet because, you know, the first time I read diet break, I was like, okay, so that's a week of pizza. Not true. Um, it, it, it actually is kind of setting you up for what, what, what life is like while you're still being responsible for food, but you're not trying to lose or gain weight. Yeah. I think, you know, and, and, and tip of the cap, um, to others, cause I, I, adopted diet breaks a little bit later than people like Eric Helms and that, and and those sorts of individuals. Um, but I've actually been on a few uh, different papers now regarding diet breaks. And, uh, actually one of the coaches in my company, James Longstrom, he was, uh, he did a kind of small diet break study as well. 
Um, so people who aren't familiar, uh, diet breaks are the idea that instead of just dieting continuously throughout a diet, you're going to have periods of maintenance, meaning um, the amount of calories you maintain your body weight at. Now, that's not a smorgasbord of calories, right? Like right. even maintenance is still somewhat restrictive based in today's food environment. So I think one of the things I really have to emphasize is that the diet break is not a break from the diet. In fact, I like what Eric Helms says. It's you're practicing maintenance. Right. You still you still want to make similar food choices. You still want to make your habits pretty similar because what you don't want to do is, you know, for you diet for a few weeks and then all of a sudden for one to two weeks you are eating really calorically dense stuff and then you try to move back to dieting again. It's going to be a really jarring shift. Yeah. You know? But like you said, Ethan, a lot of people get really disheartened on the diet because they feel like, man, I, I feel like I'm just, it feels like I'm going to have to sprint forever. That's you right. know what I mean? Like, just like, imagine if you've ever done a sprint, right? And you, like we've done a hundred meter sprint, your lungs are burning, your legs are on fire, but you know, it's only a hundred meters so you can do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But when people feel like, Oh, if I want to maintain this, I got to keep up this sprint for life. They just give up because they feel like there's no way I can do it. Well, the idea of diet breaks is to break up that dieting so that, it's not so mentally taxing, you know? So, and you know, the way I do it is, you know, there are people who have, there's some claims, there's some evidence that it may, may prevent metabolic slowing, metabolic adaptation, okay. um, you know, better than just straight dieting. And it may help maintain lean body mass. I still want to see more evidence before I'm thoroughly convinced of that. But more than anything, um, I think it could simply be something where it just improves adherence over time. That right? for because me, you, yeah, that's what it is for me. But it's also the idea, like, like you, you, if you, you you use the analogy of a sprint, the sprint is over. Then you stop running, right. and so right. I never, I never knew what I did if if my diet was aimed at two hundred and fifteen pounds, and the minute I hit this magical number that really is kind of meaningless, but that's my goal. I get to 215 pounds right now. I have a body fat percentage goal as, as uh, you, as determined by DEXA. And so when I get there, it's like, well, what do I do now? And for me, the idea of figuring out what you're going to do then long before you get there and having it be almost lifestyle is so valuable. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things is that, um, you know, you don't even have to, when it comes to diet breaks and even like higher calorie days. So I'll, I'll talk about that for a second because I yeah. think that that's important to talk about because there's there's absolutely zero evidence out there that physiologically like calorie cycling and having higher calorie days during the week is better than just eating the same amount of food every single day in terms of fat loss. But I like calorie cycling. Why? Because it helps my adherence. So like for me, um, I'll, I'll use the example of, um, you know, high calorie days as well as diet breaks. If you tell me I've got a diet, you know, 16 weeks straight and just eat the same thing every day, that's going to be exhausting. Right. But if you tell me, Hey, you can take some of your budget and allot it here and then you can get more over here. So for example, I am perfectly happy to eat a little bit less calories during the week if I get more for the weekends. That way, if I want to go and enjoy myself and have a little bit more flexibility, I've got that, right? And I'm happy to make that sacrifice because, I, like you said, sprinting, right? Like I can – it actually, for me, like let's say you're doing a fast jog, 
but you feel like that's going to go on forever. Whereas you could do a sprint and then walk. Yeah. Right. So this is kind of that comparison. So like, for example, in our app in carbon diet coach, you have a, a weekly calorie planner. So you can actually allot your calories within a certain, we have certain constraints. So people can't just do like no food for three days so they can binge for four days. Right. Um, but you know, you can allot calories. So for example, if I want to do higher calorie days on the weekend, which is what I do, I take the slider up to what I want and then automatically adjust the calories on the other days down to, um, to keep my weekly calorie budget the same. So I will do those days for either hard training sessions or if I know, like if I've got a social event coming up, you know, I'll do that as well. Um, diet breaks, I'll plan, I, I plan, I planned my whole last year. Um, I was, I competed in, uh, uh, USA powerlifting nationals in October in the 105 kilo class. And now I'm dropping down to the 93 kilo class, which is like basically going from 231 to 205. Wow. Um, and um, I scheduled my diet breaks all throughout the holidays, you know, because I went from October till now. Now I'm at like right around 212, 213 pounds in a really good spot. Um, but I scheduled my diet breaks for when I knew I had stuff coming up, right? So we went to Napa Valley for uh, a week for uh, Christmas vacation, had my diet break, right? Yeah. Uh, we had uh, Gasparilla here in Tampa, which is a big celebration. It's kind of like our, it's kind of like our, um, Mardi Gras. Okay. Um, let's get to the diet break. Then we had, uh, we went to Australia because my wife's Australian and we went uh, there for her sister's wedding. Let's get to the diet break. So it's, I can use those to break up my diet, but I can also use them to give me the flexibility I need when I need it. Yeah. Right. And that has been extremely helpful for me. And I think that that's, some people don't even think about that or know that exists. And I think that that's um, one of those. If people just have more tools, it, it, it helps so much. And like you said, like just telling you, Hey, Ethan, you don't have to sprint forever. Yeah. And then getting into the whole idea of like reverse dieting. And I'll be straight up. Uh, there are some people in the scientific community who've been critical of me because there's no studies on reverse dieting. Um, but this is something that I observe with clients and I kind of like tell people like, well, what, what choice do you really have when you get to the end of the diet? Because it's either like you keep doing this forever or you come up with some kind of plan where you can raise your, your energy intake and hopefully maintain your body weight or close to your body weight. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I've done it. And, and like, again, this is not universal. This isn't an absolute, but I did notice that by, by doing it the way you kind of lay out, I was able to increase my calories slowly over time to no adverse effect. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, people have said, well, how, how can you do this? If you're, if you're raising them, like you, you know, at a certain point, you're going to start gaining weight. Yeah, of course. At a certain point, you're going to start gaining weight. hundred percent. No, no arguments there. Uh, but I kind of lay out in the book how you can go about, you know, when I talk about like your maintenance calorie ranges, as opposed to people think of maintenance calories as being like a, a, a set point, you know, in reality, it's probably a range of a few hundred calories that your body weight can be buffered with it. Um, and, you know, I think that also when you feed calories, so this is one of the, this speaks to a larger issue. A lot of people don't think about calories in calories out as two independent variables. Um, and they, they, they say things like, well, I, I ate in a calorie deficit. I didn't lose weight. No, 
<laughs> if you didn't lose weight, you weren't in a calorie deficit. Now, you, may have, you might have eaten what you thought was a calorie deficit, but it wasn't for you. And um, that's because I like using monetary um, comparisons because I think they're intuitive for people. So when you overfeed, your, ener- your energy expenditure doesn't stay static. It goes up, right? When you underfeed, your energy expenditure goes down. And that can be, one, through your endogenous metabolic rate, your BMR, but also your NEAT, your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is just like fidgeting, non-ambulatory movements, uh, unintentional movements throughout the day. Believe it or not, that is a significant portion of your daily energy expenditure. So when I say things like energy expenditure, a lot of people just think I mean exercise. No, 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 no. Exercise is usually the smallest portion of your energy expenditure. Right. I'm talking about all these little movements you don't even think about throughout the day. So what I think happens with some of this reverse dieting stuff is I think you've got people who they have this buffering range of calories. And if you slowly increase them, um, what tends to happen is the body just buffers out that increase with increases in BMR or NEAT if you give it enough time, right? So if you add five, you know, 300 calories, or like I did this that, um, this past um, in my diet. So I got to 97 kilograms and I was on, I'm trying to think what my average, I think my average weekly calories were about 2,700, I want to say. And then it bumped me up to uh, the app. I, I used my app to do this. So Carbon Diet Coach. Um, was coaching me this entire time while I was dropping weight. Um, it bumped me up to, I want to say like 3250 as like a maintenance rate, as a maintenance start. And then I was doing a slow reverse diet from there. Wow. Well, I actually, I got up to 3450 calories. So I went up about 200 calories over the course of about 10 weeks. And I actually dropped a kilo during that time. Wow. Now, now I'm not saying that I'm violating the laws of thermodynamics. Obviously, that's not happening. But what, what tends to happen with me is when I add calories in, I become spontaneously more active without even thinking about it, right? But if I just threw 300, two or 300 calories on top of my diet right at the start, do, do I think the same thing would have happened? Mm, I don't. I think the, the kinetics of how you do it matter. Now, I don't have any empirical evidence to back that up. So when I tell people this, I always say, hey, I'm not trying to sell this to you. This is just a tool that I found useful. If you don't want to use it, great, right? But um, yeah, I've just found it to be very useful. Now, eventually I did start gaining weight, like, um, but I think part of that was because I had a taper week, so I was not training as hard in the gym, right. and my weight jumped up by around a kilo or so. Um, so, But at minimum, I maintained my weight and, and ended up adding about 300 calories over the course of about 11 weeks. Now, 300 isn't huge, and I was already eating enough. You know, My maintenance was 3,200 calories. That's, that's a pretty good amount of calories. But hey, I always like eating more. <laughs> sure. And um, you know, also what what you can't account for too is when I'm adding those calories, I'm probably having better training sessions and feeling better too. So I think that that matters as well. So I think one thing I really want to emphasize to people is, you know, don't think about calories in and calories out as like set numbers. You know, these are moving targets within buffering regions, and you can use that information to your advantage. And when I talk about reverse dieting, well, we have a book about that as well, the complete reverse dieting guide. Um, you know, you can use the the increases in metabolic or in energy expenditure due to overfeeding to your advantage if you overfeed correctly, right? So I actually have people doing like periods of you know 
diet, diet breaks, then reverse diet for certain, especially if I've got people who've got to lose a lot of weight, Ethan, yeah. like, like hundreds of pounds. Like that is who I think these tools are absolutely essential for. Because if somebody's got like 200 pounds to lose, that is such a long journey. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, and like, honestly, that journey is, is, I think, look, it took me 18 years to, to, to come to a place that I'm actually comfortable at, that I can go on a vacation and not worry about what's going to happen to my body on the vacation. Like it took a yeah. long time to figure that out. The first portion of it was a liquid diet, which was awesome for taking off a, a hundred pounds, right? It didn't yeah. set me up at all for what to do at the end of the diet. Not at all. Right. And I think that's one of those things. It's kind of like, you know, giving a man to fish or teaching a man how to fish, right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it might be good to give a starving man a fish to get him so he's not going to starve to death, right? But then how do you continue that? How do you continue to be able for that person to provide? Well, you got to teach him how to do this stuff. And that's like, I really try to focus my stuff on education. One, because I feel like I have a natural talent for being able to convey complex scientific information in a way that's palatable for most people. Um, but also because I, I truly believe that education is what's going to help people uh, get through this stuff, yeah. you know? And it's, it's just, it's, I tell people, I, I actually feel really bad for consumers for the fitness industry because there is just an absolute overload of information. It's absolutely like, it's, it's kind of like, um, I, I, one of my hobbies is shooting guns, right. Mm -hmm. and, and like tactical rifle courses and whatnot. I love that stuff. Well, I first got into it. I, I first got my first, um, you know, AR 15. I was like, and I was like, okay, well, what's the best one to get? And then you go into the forums and it's just like, holy shit. Um, okay. So there's <laughs> about a billion options. And then, Oh, by the way, within that, what muzzle device and then what handrail, and then what light do you get on it? And then what kind of optic do you get on it? And then, oh, what about your buttstock? And oh, do you want to keep the internals? Do you want to change the bolt carrier group? Like, it was just like so overwhelming. I was just like, what do I do? And I actually remember uh, somebody who's kind of uh, comparable in the firearms community to what I do in the fitness industry. They looked at me and they said, take whatever $500 you're going to spend on that. Go spend it on ammunition and training and go out and just train. Yeah. Because you're not going to out, no matter what you put on that, you're not going to outshoot it. Not now. Now, I, I realize that guns are a very heated topic in this country, so I don't want to alienate half our listeners. But um, the what I learned from that was that I had to learn. I couldn't hack my way to being a really good shooter. Right. right? No, it's a good I had analogy. To get the yeah. Training. Yeah. I had to get the training, and just like my other hobbies is angling. I love fishing. Um, and you know, when I, when I go out to, with a guide I'll, and I'll hire guides here and there because I want to learn. Right. Um, and what I've seen with, with almost zero exceptions is that the people who are the best at that sort of thing, put in the most work and right. they're very diligent. You know, like I, my, the best guy ever I went out with, he's out at 4am getting bait. So he, when I, when we go out to fish, he's got, you know, a, a live well, full of a thousand prime baits so that when we go out we can just half the time we just spend out throwing live baits just to attract the fish to come to us 
you know. Um, so they go out with a game plan. They've learned it. If I ask them, like, hey, what fishing rod should I get? It's, the questions are going to be, well, what application? What are you targeting? What kind of lure are you going to have on it? What kind of line are you going to put on it? So it's like every question, they ask more questions. And that's the same thing in nutrition. Somebody says, hey, what kind of diet should I be on? Or what do you think of this? It's going to be, well, what's your goal? Right. Um, what are you using it for? What 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 kind of time period? Right. So, uh, I haven't listened, uh, admittedly, to your interviews with Mike and Spencer, but I'm guessing that they probably didn't make a lot of extreme statements, and they probably were speaking in general, kind of like how I am. Yeah. And everything is tools in a tool belt, and it just depends on on the individuals to how you apply those tools. Yeah. I mean, that's it. I think that I think the the thing. At the end of the day, it's it's training is the way that hearing don't eat carbohydrates is not nearly complex enough to really understand what's going on. And you can have a success or a failure if you if you diet in that fashion. And again, your book is pretty straightforward. It's not a bunch of like high end biochemistry speak. You know, it's like it's a. It's a it's a book that communicates easily, um, and I think that anybody who's doing any of these diets should at least understand some of the nuance that goes into it beyond, you know, even beyond calories in, calories out, even beyond, you know, X move more than you're consuming. I think those Absolutely. are too simplified, too. Yeah, if I can brag on my book, Fat Loss Forever, real quick, I believe it or not, Ethan, I actually wrote that book in eight weeks. Wow. <laughs> Um, yeah, I just, uh, it's, it's funny. I, um, I'll tell you the story, how that came up and then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll get out of the way. Um, so I've been wanting, I've been thinking about writing kind of a fat loss manifesto for a long time. And then, um, I had been, I had been listening to Joe Rogan's podcast and had been kind of trying to get on there because he seemed like he followed me on Twitter and he seemed like he was interested in the stuff I had to say follow him and are influenced by his nutrition advice. So uh, one night at midnight, I uh, look at my, my Twitter and I don't, I don't have my notifications for Twitter turned on. The only way that I'll get a little red thing on there saying I've got notifications if somebody who I follow messages me. So it's like midnight uh, and I get a notification. So I pull it up and Rogan's like, Hey, do you want to come on the podcast and debate somebody? And I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, I originally wanted Gary Taubes, but it actually ended up better. I got my good friend, Dom D'Agostino, who's a ketogenic diet advocate, but going into the debate, which actually didn't end up being a debate because Dom's a smart guy and we basically agreed on 95% of stuff. Right. Um, but when I, when I want to learn about something even more, I write about it. That's how I learn. So I knew a lot of the stuff in there already, but I learned so much more just by reading and having, because as you can, as you, when you read the book, you found out like I didn't really make any claims without citations yeah. that were click. And if you, if people, for people who have the ebook, all the citations are clickable. So you can go right to the study and look and see if I misrepresented anything. So yeah, I was really proud of that book because it was just, it felt like it was the most natural book to write um, because of not just the scientific background, um, but also, uh, like just having coached so many people and seeing what had worked and seeing what had worked with different clients 
and being able to come out from the perspective of, hey, I don't have a dog in this fight. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, sure, we got a, a chapter on flexible dieting. We also, we also got a chapter on the ketogenic diet. And we talk about intermittent fasting. We talk about everything, right? It's, about it's a great vegans. book that really does welcome any diet. Any diet, you're, it's basically going like any diet you're going to do. Great, do that diet. Exactly. So that, it's funny because people who will like uh, try to take shots at me, they're like, well, you're pushing your diet book. I was like, you ought to. Have you, have you read it? Because <laughs> I don't push any particular diet in there, you know? So I think that that's, I think that it's, I told people, I th- I said, you know, it might sound arrogant, but I think anybody who coaches people, that's an absolute must have. And I think for people who are you know struggling with their weight loss, I've had a lot of people message me lots, a lot and say, um, you know, your book changed my life. Like that this was also intimidating to me. And now I feel like I have so much power. Uh, because it feels like the veil has been lifted back on everything. And I understand I had people say, you know, now I understand why this did work and I understand why this didn't work. And I understand why I put the weight back on and now I feel so empowered to keep it off. So again, I think that, and the one thing that I, I, I emphasize is not just that, but just like your experience, Ethan, for example, 18 years, like, that probably feels like a really long time, but look at where you came from. Yeah. Right? And it's worth it, right? Like if it takes you 18 years to do that, it was still worth it. Right. hundred percent. Like exactly. So what I'll tell people, even if you have a long way to go, like just realize that listen to all the mistakes that Ethan just talked about that he made and he still got to the place that he wanted to get to. It just took him a long time. Yeah. Right. So if you just, I mean, I hate to be like raw, raw, like cliche motivational stuff, but just don't quit. You know, don't like you fall off the horse. Fine. You're human. Get back on. And that's why the the back page of fat loss forever says, um, I hope I don't screw it up, but it's like, uh, be tenacious, be persistent, be consistent, never quit. It's awesome. And, that, and that's, that's, I think that, the that kind of advice is really undervalued in this sort of journey because a lot of it is just about putting in the work. You can't, you know, you can, I, I like what Mike Israel said about training a few months ago. He's like, a lot of people try to like scientifically hack their way around doing hard fucking work in the gym. <laughs> yes. And there, there, there is, there's a reason that the bros in bodybuilding, even though they might not have the most science-based training, most of them train really freaking hard, you know, and that's 95% of it. Yeah. So it's the same thing. Like same you could thing. do, you could do a lot of the wrong things, but if you put the work in, you're going to see results. Just, you know, we, I think Ethan and I would emphasize to try to, add working smart to working hard. And I think you can get um, a lot of that stuff. Like basically our entire, my wife and I, our entire business is set up essentially trying to make that easier for people by offering coaching or our books or our app that's now out. Um, That's what we try to do. It's amazing. What you're doing is amazing, Lane. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I appreciate being on it. Um, you know, I, uh, when I, I was funny when you, uh, ordered my book, I think 
my assistant messaged me because he's a big movie buff. And he was like, did you see who just ordered your book? <laughs> and I was like, no, who? And he's like, Stephen, so please, man, this, this, and this. And I said, Oh shit. I love remember the Titans. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I loved yeah. your book, man. Your book was amazing. The, 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 the journey of discovering guys like you has been so wonderful and so empowering. And, and like the way you talk about your feeling of ease as your responsibility increases, I've experienced that too. It's kind of hard to wrap my head around because there was a long period of my life where I actually felt better putting the responsibility into other things, but, but taking it back and understanding how shit works and seeing results. It's been amazing. So thank you. You're welcome. I'm going to add one thing to that. I'm a very transparent person. So this is me really putting myself out there. Okay. Um, But I'll, 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 I want to echo what you said that that responsibility is freedom. Okay. I feel that same way. So I, a few years ago, I was married beforehand and uh, my marriage ended, I had an affair and um, you know, I was really judged like it all came out to public and all that kind of stuff. And that experience of having to own it and be responsible and just repeatedly say, this was wrong and it's my fault that was actually so freeing and actually therapeutic for me. I don't know if that makes sense. Totally does. Yeah, no, I actually uh, think that's the way like a Catholic confessional works, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's one of those things that like, it actually helped me understand things a lot better. Why I did what I did, why happened, what happened, happened. And also like helped me heal so that I learned from that and grew. And I think that that's a lot of this in, in your experience and what you talked about is growth, right? Like personal growth. And when you go through that personal growth now, whereas responsibility before felt like an attack or felt very uncomfortable, it feels very freeing. Does yeah, that make sense? Totally. It totally does. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's also the difference between um, discovering responsibility for yourself versus somebody forcing responsibility upon you 100 percent, 100 percent. now one, one thing i will say is like in my situation i had a therapist who helped me a ton um and she made a huge difference in my life and i actually think that a lot of people who struggle with weight or any aspect i think everybody should be in therapy to be quite honest like i don't want to be cliche but um that just helped me so much so um i would also recommend that if people feel like the X's and O's support of like what we provide isn't enough. Hey, go, go get yourself examined in terms of like inner, inner workings of why, why you think the way you do, why you act the way you do, why, why things are the way they are. And I think like understanding that, man, it gives you so much more control over your emotions. And when you have control over your emotions, it it just changes your life so much more. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think, I think mental is a big, big portion of all of this stuff 100 percent, man it, you know it's again one, uh, i'll make one more financial comparison i follow a guy named dave ramsey um and he's he's very practical and one of the things he recommends is that you pay off um debts if you have a lot of debt that you pay off the smallest debt first and then the next biggest and the next biggest rather than paying it off as like what's the most the highest interest rate 
And when people criticize him for that, they say, well, that's stupid, right? Like, if you look at math, you're paying more money out that way. And he said, his, I love his explanation. He says, if we were doing math in the first place, we wouldn't be in debt. Yeah. And then he said, this is a behavior issue. This is not an issue of math. And I think the same thing about, like, the obesity epidemic, that sort of thing. We know what to do, but just telling somebody, eat less, move more. That's pretty awful advice that's not really going to help many people. Yeah. You know, yes, it is true. It is the truth, and it is you, you cannot refute it. We have tons of studies to show this. But we need to figure out how do we get people's behavior to that point. And I think that's what we're getting close to, and I hope there's more studies about actual behavior modification in the future. Yeah, me too. I think that would be super useful. Absolutely. Amazing, brother. Thank you so much, Lane. You're welcome, man. I enjoyed it. Hopefully, uh, hopefully this uh, this uh, quarantines, lockdowns, all that kind of stuff will we can get back to normal life here before too long. I was actually I was actually planning to fly out to California and do kind of like a podcast tour out there. So I was hoping we could have done this in person, but uh, maybe there'll still be that opportunity in the future. Well, listen, the next time you're in California, you got please come in and we'll do it in person. And I'm I'm going to come to Tampa at some point and work out with you and spend a day with you. Absolutely. You'd be more than welcome. We'd love to have you on our podcast that we're still trying to get off the ground. <laughs> I can't wait, man. I really look forward to it. Awesome. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, anybody, like I've already plugged all my stuff, but if you want to find me on socials, on bio lane, on pretty much everything. And just want to thank you again, Ethan, for having me on this. I appreciate the platform because it enables me to reach more people and hopefully get a good message out there. Yeah, I love it. And your message is good. Thank you, brother. Thank you. All right. Talk soon. Now for some Q&A. This question is from Adam. Adam writes, any books you would recommend on nutrition? Uh, thanks for the question, Adam. I will say that I started, the first book I ever read on nutrition was by a gal named Adele Davis. I can't even remember what the book was called, and I think I might have read two or three books by her. And they were kind of like very old school diet books, but I remember liking them a lot and they were kind of straightforward. And if I'm remembering correctly, had some really good information in them. Uh, more current sciencey books uh, that I'd recommend are uh, uh, Lane Norton wrote a book called Fat Loss for Life. And uh, Mike Isratel wrote a book called The Renaissance Diet 2.0. Both of those books are outstanding. I read both of them. So those are the books. Those are like my go-to books. If I have any question currently about anything, I look for an answer within one of those two books. Thank you for your question. If you have a question you'd like me to answer on the podcast, please submit it to AmericanGlutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.